From the north, citizens of Earth, welcome to Forum Borealis. Today we are expanding your paradigm on a subject that at first glance may seem outlandish, but becomes increasingly likely the closer you look at the evidence. The roots of Freemasonry has always been a disputed matter. And although there can be no doubt that Scots, and probably also Knights Templars, had a central part in its modern conception, the core of the Freemasonic lore and rituals may actually blindside us. Referring now to the three first degrees, the so-called Blue Lodge, which is the original Masonic structure. These are known today as Entered Apprentice, Fellow Craft and Master Mason. But could this, the original and true Freemasonry, actually be a remnant of the Norse mystery cult brought to Scotland by Vikings, then later cloaked in Christian terminology for hundreds of years, while the locals practiced both the old and new religion, and after the Black Death, having its Norse aspect and roots forgotten? Our guest tonight thinks so, and, as he will show us, there is good reason to believe this. Now, we've already seen shocking evidence in our program with Scott Walter that Scots and Norwegians were tight all the way up to the 14th century, all the while still commemorating pagan rituals and honouring their gods, despite officially being Christian. And as we shall see in a future show with another Norwegian researcher, this was by hand of the Celtic Church, in itself a mixture of impulses not found in Catholicism, which never would have stood for such practices anyway. So today we will examine deeper this spiritual relationship that existed for so long across the North Sea. In part one, go through a brief history to corroborate it, and in part two, we'll examine the three degrees itself, and discover how much they correspond to three Norse god cults. Now, as in any established field, no matter the amount of evidence and no matter the actual truth of anything, there will always be hypersensitive dogmatists who will spin into a fit of hysteria when confronted with such critical allegations and revisionism, and no doubt this will also happen here. Naturally, among academics, but also many Freemasons will be annoyed with this, especially those who identify as Christian. And although most Masonic orders in the world are not declared as Christian, the dominating one in Norway is indeed this, with powerful leaders who are even clerics in the Norwegian church. So no wonder that our guest tonight was thrown out as soon as he published his findings. But if you are a genuine truth-seeker, you will listen to his arguments, and if that piques your curiosity sufficiently, you will want to go further and read his book to really see if he can back up his claims. And then you can make your judgment call. 
Whatever that is, there can be no doubt that our guest is a passionate expert on the matter. So let's get to know him. Arvid Usta reached the highest regular degree in the Freemasonic Order DNFO, the same level as his father, Romand Easter, who originally recruited him as his sponsor, or father as we say in Norwegian. But in more recent times, he's become an honorary member of the Italian Grand Lodge of the Ancient and Accepted Scottish Rite, or the Italian Philosophical Rite, as it's also called, who are not afraid of examining ancient roots of masonry. Ustav was born in 1942 and went to officer's training school for the field artillery before he became a graduate engineer chartered from NTNU in Trondheim. Thereafter he went to France and took a MBA from INSEAD in Fontainebleau. During his professional life he has worked in industry for Hydro as consulting engineer for Habasta as an advisor for Nordea Bank, and in 1997 he established his own business company, Ystad's Akvit, when he created his own brand of Aquavit, which is a traditional Norwegian form of distilled spirits, with unknown origins and age, first mentioned in writing in 1531, and today has become an important part of Nordic drinking culture. In 2020, Ystad won the bronze medal from International Wine and Spirit Competition. Today, he is a retiree living with his partner in Oslo. His main interests are old lingual and cultural history, especially the Nordic, as well as Renaissance Baroque and church music, and skiing and tennis. In Arvid's own words, this research led to my being expelled from the Norwegian Freemasonic Order, which claimed that I had broken the laws. However, I have only related to what every Freemason learns by his admission, and which even lies in the rituals, namely, a Freemason's convictions and conscience take precedence over any organizatorial rules and commandments. This knowledge that Freemasonry is a direct continuation of our old Norse religion, is new. Researchers have been looking for a deeper understanding of our ancient religion for centuries. I did not write the book to damage Freemasonry. On the contrary, I have shown what the ancient initiatory rites of Blue Lodges really mean. For me, and for many other Freemasons, this knowledge has helped to give the Masonic Order a renewed interest. Here are cultural traditions that date back very far in our cultural history, in fact all the way back to the Bronze and Stone Ages. So mote it be. Welcome to Forum Morales, Ovid. Thank you. Now, it's uh, very interesting to have you on this show because... As I told you before we started, we've had a few other people who are doing groundbreaking research, as I call it, in similar fields. Okay. So I'm going to mention to you two books and the research in those books because they kind of harmonize with yours, only a different angle. One of them 
I think you're aware of that's uh, Harald Bolke. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I know him personally. In fact, he bought my car. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Is, uh, is he the one who told me about um, told you about me? No, actually not. And uh, I I told him after I discovered you. I said to him, "Look at this," and I sent a link to like tip him off, but um, he hasn't responded yet. So I didn't know that okay. um, uh, you knew about each other. But his research is groundbreaking too, yeah. and I think his research uh, dovetails with yours. Of course, you're going f- much further than him, but what he has uncovered kind of fits. But we'll we'll get into that. We're don't, not doing it now. Yeah. The other approach, which uh, I'm pretty sure you haven't heard about because it's so new, it's a guy called Scott Walter. Uh, he's very famous because he's a, also a TV host for American on Earth, a very popular show in the line of uh, Curse of Oak Island and stuff like that. Okay. Mm. And he has... Well, I, I'm not going to uh, surprise you now. I'm going to tell you uh, during the conversation what he has uncovered, which is very in line with your work. Okay, yeah. Mm. So that will be interesting. But also I'm going to dig about yours. Because when I just stumbled over your stuff, I don't know why it's so unknown to me. Uh, I'm interested in this stuff. We're country fellows and never heard about this. And when I saw it, I was so surprised because it's kind of substantiating other stuff that we have had already. So I'm very excited about doing this with you today. Okay. And people, (laughs) prepare yourself. Your minds are going to be blowed and uh, Freemasons <laughs> out there, please, please settle down. Hear him out. Okay. <laughs> this isn't a threat to, to no, the no. traditional. And I, I would say the same to academicians. Settle down, listen to his arguments and, and, and see where it goes. So you've made this book that is called Freemasons in the Viking Age. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, like we also lamented before we began, it's an only Norwegian so far. Yeah. Mm. But I would, uh, before we go into your innovative hypothesis, or maybe I should call it a theory. But before we do that, I, I just want to fill the reader, uh, the listeners in. They've heard, of course, your brief CV, but... How did you discover masonry and why are you passionate about masonry? Well, I have been a Freemason for nearly 40 years. And um, it was my father who was my father, as we say. Mm. He invited me into Freemasonry. And after my first meeting, he said to me at the table, Arvid, he said, Here's a lot of Norse religion. Mm-hmm. I uh, looked around, but couldn't see anything. It was just some Egyptian symbols. And uh, I have, at that time, I was not very um, occupied with it. But uh, my father died just a few months after my initiation. So I had never wow. had the time to discuss it further with him. Right. But uh, when I went into retirement from my job, I decided that this was a thing that I would look into. So then I started to see if my father's theory was right. 
So what, what did your father tell you as his theory? Well, not very much. He just said that here is a lot of Norse religion. And I never, I have never forgot this. And um, when uh, I neared my retirement, I had a meeting with a grandmaster in the Oslo Lodge and uh, discussed what can I do for the lodge. And he recommended me to go into the research lodge in, in Oslo. But I knew how they work, and uh, I found that, that that's not the place for me, but I want to find out this for myself. Mm. Of so course. Yeah, go on. I, I started to look what was written. I had uh, his old books from uh, Snorre, of course, and then the old Norwegian sagas. And I looked into this and read Snorre, and I looked at what is in the museums in the Scandinavian capitals, Stockholm, Copenhagen, Oslo, and other places, and uh, compare this with Freemasonry. And um, just, it, it was very quick to see a lot of similarities. Yeah. So, um, so, that's, that, so all the similarities made you wonder, hmm, maybe my father was onto something, maybe he knew something more than just maybe there's more here than just accidental similarities right oh yes yeah. because he knew his Norge and he knew the old sagas and um, for instance the Icelandic sagas tells that the settlers from Norway Norway brought their religion laws and order of society with them when they um, went to Iceland and um, in the islands in the west at that time, they, the Vikings and the settlers established kingdoms in Scotland, North and West Scotland, in Ireland, Wales, and uh, also the free society in, uh, in Iceland. What timeline are we on now? That is, the, the first um, Norwegian settlers emigrated about 600 after Christ. Mm. on the islands in the West Sea, that the Orkneys, Shetlands, and the Faroe Islands. Yeah. And the Viking period started about 800, and um, it lasted up to about 1066 when the Normans came to England. So this is about 250 years when they had large influence of Scandinavian society, in Great Britain, as we call it today. Hmm. Uh, Danelov was central in the eastern part of England, with York as the capital. Hmm. So um, I think this is very well known also in uh, in English history. Yeah, let me let me inject here uh, because it's as a host, it's my role to keep the listeners uh, up to speed. Mm. First off, Snorra, as you're referring to, Snorra, he is the most famous writers of the Norse history. He was an Icelander, Snorra Sturlasons, and his, uh, he wrote down, I mean, thanks to him, so much is lost, but we have his stuff, and 
he recorded um, the history, the myths, the everything that is uh, so important to understand our past. Yeah. And that's that. And when it comes to the Freemasonic order that we discussed in the beginning that your father belonged to and you belong to, <clears throat> remember this is this goes out to the whole world and there's probably other Masons listening in and we have to explain to them. Yeah. It's a very different Freemasonic order from the one that is... Uh, they are used to, like in, in, in America, they're using the ancient and accepted Scottish system. But the one you are in, or was in, before they threw you out, <laughs> we're going to get to that, is the, it's called the Swedish system. Yeah. And it has 13 degrees. Uh, so it's different from, I mean, there's many Freemasonic orders and uh, different rituals, but this is like a minority in the world. And, uh, uh, but the good thing is that the three first degrees are the same in all Freemasonic orders. And, and those are the degrees you are focusing on, right? Yeah, that, that, that's right. Mm. So it's relevant no matter which, which, um, obedience we're talking about here. Yeah. Mm. They, they, they are about the same. <clears throat> it's not the same. <coughs> Excuse me. They are not exactly the same, but they are, they are somewhat the same. Yeah. And and I only speak about the three original um, Freemason degrees that uh, came out in England and Scotland in the beginning of the 1700s. Mm. And which all Freemasonry today comes from. So let's let's start with going through the traditional theories uh, of where or how masonry emerged yeah the the main uh, the main theory is probably that it uh, originates from the stone masons which built the large cathedrals in uh, europe and that they ended up in england after building the great york uh, minster uh, and uh, other cathedrals in england that is because it is called Mason, and that is French for murer, as we say in Norwegian. Another theory is that it originates from the Knights Templars that were crushed uh, from the French king and the church in 1307, and uh, that um, this went underground and, uh, came, and later became the Freemasons. Mm. But uh, I mean that uh, the origins of Freemasonry must be a really a religion, not some, uh, let's say, uh, hilt or stone masons society, uh, because the content of the Freemasons is clearly a, a religious mm. society. Mm. And... Uh we could, we might as well also go through the traditional explanation of the Norse religion. What is the uh, mainstream view on what happened to that? Well, do you mean in Scandinavia, in Norway? Yeah, the the Norse religion was it obviously isn't here anymore. So how did it how did no. it disappear? Yeah, it um, it is the mainstream of opinion is that um, Christianity was introduced in um, 
Scandinavia and Norway in about the year 1100. And um, from this period, we have the oldest churches, the stave churches, and also a lot of stone churches from about 1100. Mm. And that uh, Christianity took over after that. Snorri wrote in the beginning of the 1200s, and uh, he went, he had a trip or stay in Norway for two years, 1218 to 1220, when he traveled around and uh, collected the old religion that was about to die out at that time. Mm. This this became his Edda that he um, wrote when he came back to Iceland. Yeah. We are we owe so much to to Snorra, yeah. and Iceland, of course, have a lot of good archives from the past, not just Snorra, uh, and much more is preserved in Iceland than in Norway. But um, let's also add that by this time, um, it's important for people to understand that the Norse paganism was. I mean, we were very late to be Christianed. They had already crushed the paganism in Rome, of course, in Greece, even in in the Celtic areas. All of that was gobbled up by Catholics. Mm. And so we lingered on. Now, I think it's um, time to introduce our mutual acquaintance, Harald Bolke, and um, his theory, because uh, I think it kind of substantiates, it kind of helps people to understand why you may why your research may not be outrageous because okay. he has discovered and I'm going to interview him uh, folks by the way so just stay tuned for that uh, interview in the future but he has uncovered that Norway wasn't really Christian by uh, the Catholics but instead they were Christian by the Celtic Church really yeah. that's very interesting yeah now, there is controversy about what the Celtic Church was, what they did, who they were, etc. But according to his research, they were much more pagan than the Catholic Church. In fact, they had lore from Egypt, of all things. They had Pythagorean impulses. They were big on sacred geometry. And we see here already a parallel to Masons and Templars, architecture, uh, geometry, numbers, stuff like that. Mm. They were very close to the Druids in in terms of uh, spirituality. And so when Iceland for sure were Christian by Irish uh, monks, and if Norway too, then um, of course when the Norse, and, and, and the Norse religion was already in decline at this point. So when they met this Celtic church, it, I mean, if they met the Catholic Church, it would go from day to night. It's so different. But when they meet the Celtic Church, it's actually very similar in essence. Of course, language difference, symbol difference, cultural difference. But in essence, it's much more similar. And that would make it much more easy to get Norwegians over to Christ, as they call it, than if it was uh, the the dogmatic, uh, inquisitive Catholics who came here. Mm. And if the, his research is true, which I think it is, because he has overwhelming evidence, then um, it's uh, Norway has actually not been Catholic that very long, because 
the Celtic Church was crushed in the, around the 1000, 1100s, but the last bastion of the Celtic Church, and you can see this if you go into the papal bulls against heretics, you can see that the Pope, the Vatican, again and again and again threatened Norway to come into the fold, to, to give up and become a part of Catholicism. So, okay. During the 1200s and the 1300s, the last Celtic remnant uh, was swallowed up, gobbled up by the Catholics in Norway. And then just after 200 years, we became Protestants. So Catholics only had 200 years to control our country mm. before it went uh, free again. And so now we can uh, rewind back to the end of the Norse era and enter your theory. Okay. So your beginning, your your starting point was to see, hmm, my father said that Norse and masonry is very similar. You became a mason and then you recognized the similarity yourself. Yes. And I started a research into the subject. Um, what is... Um, very interesting is that um, there are three medieval documents from England describing what happened in England under the King Atelstan in the 1920s. He held a conference in York and um, the king had inherited Northumberland from his brother-in-law the Norse king Sigtrygg, Sigtrygg after Sigtrygg's death. This was a north country, northern English country, or let's say um, free country under the Viking rules at that time. So, so this was one of the areas in England that the Vikings got autonomy over. They could expand their, their Viking empire ja. to, to England. Ja, they had the Danelaw, Mm. which they had taken about 860, I think. So, large part of eastern England and northern England was under Viking influence. They made kingdoms there. And um, at that time, the Norse king Sigtrygg, he came from the, uh, the kingdom in Ireland and became king in York. He died... And King Atelstan, he established, he got York and he took York and became the ruler of this kingdom. Mm. He held a conference, these documents say, in, uh, in York, where he corrected some mistakes that was taken in the craft as they call it. Mm -hmm. And there are one of these documents is called the York Legend, Legend of the Craft. And um, if it's okay for you, I can read the beginning. Sure, sure. The original is as follows. This craft came into England, as I you say, in time of good King Adelstone's day. He made the both Hole and Ekebore and high templus of great honore, to sporten him in both day and night. This is Old English, 
written in about 1300. And uh, it says that in, in York, there are three uh, holes. One is for, there's one uh, small one, the two small ones, and one big hole that is called uh, the Templus of Great Honore. Mm. If we go to Snorre, Snorre says in his um, Edda about Åsgård, that is the home of the gods. They had a large hole that was in there. The high seat was to Alfadar, that is Odin. Mm. And they, they built a horg that was to the Gidjene or Åsjene. This was a very beautiful house called Bengal. This was for Freya. And then there was a house with uh, for the smiths, where they had hammer and tongue and all different tools. That was for Tor. Mm. So we see the three rooms that Snorre described in the 1200 very similar to the one described in the York legend in the Hallevill manuscript, as it is called. Mm. Hmm. I think that it is said that Adelstein, he corrected the mistakes in the craft, and he, in the following year, held a great meeting in Emon in Cambria, where noblemen from all over his realm took part. After this meeting, the king called himself King of England and ruler of all Britain after this meeting. Mm. And I think the aim of Atlestan was to use the religion as means to get control over the large Scandinavian community that lived in this area. And uh, this was seemingly successful. And uh, I think that in this reformed society or religion, I think that the Norse gods like Freya, Odin and Thor were removed from the rites and were substitutes by King Solomon from the Bible. Mm, mm. But, but let this, me ask you before you go on, uh, the Viking communities that lived in England and and ruled their, their themselves and and uh, of course in part of part of uh, history parts of uh, great britain was also ruled directly by by the norse yeah. the viking kings but in parts uh, united kingdom was also a separate kingdom but there were like i said autonomic mm. viking communities but didn't all the vikings who settled in England, not just those who invaded, but those who actually lived there and and uh, did agriculture and stuff. Did they preserve their Norse religion for a while? Or I I've always thought they became Christians very early. Um, the scholars talk about a mixed religion that uh, they had ah. at that time. That goes also for Scotland. Mm. So, uh, but they, they don't go into uh, much about the what sort of religion this was or what type of religion it was. But I think that they they brought their order of society with them and their religion and their laws. That's the Dane law, for instance. 
and they st- stuck to that when they uh, settled in England. And uh, I, s- I cannot see why they should yeah. convert their religion into Christianity just because... I agree, because they, they were not, they were not uh, controlled. So why would they just give up just because they're at another they live at another place i mean they did not do it in iceland they did not do it in greenland okay you can say there weren't local people there with uh, another religion that threatened them but a mixed religion makes very sense because even if they were even if they were coming there as the rulers they would be influenced but the other way is more natural that they influence as long as they are independent or even rulers, their influence on England is more logical. And of course, like I say, it's both. It goes both ways, right? That's just natural. That's what, if you look at the history, of, uh, what's folkevandring in English? Um, migration. Yeah, the great folk migrations. That always was the case, that there was always some exchanges. Of course, when there's invasions, yeah. The people who are invaded have to some degree or other adopt the new rulers. But even the most dictatorial rulers knew that in order to actually get people on board, you cannot just make them throw out their old ways. You have to find a hybrid. You have to find a way to preserve their local uh, customs and traditions. And Christianity, probably more than any other religion in the world was extremely flexible when it comes to this. If you look at the Christian practices, the Christian celebrations, the, the, the festival times, even in the deepest lore and theology of Christianity, you will hardly find anything original. <laughs> you can, f- no. it's very famous. I agree with that. Right? It's very famous that no. almost everything in, in, in Christianity can be found in other older uh, traditions or co- even contemporary traditions from when it's emerged. So why would it be different here? It wouldn't be different. Christians were excellent in adopting to local conditions. So it makes all the sense in the world that uh, there would be an amalgam between the uh, no, Christianity. No. And uh, remember, in England, there wasn't Catholicism. There was, like I said, there was the Celtic Church and of course the Anglican Church uh, eventually, so they always had their own, they even have their own stories about how Jesus came to England. Some think he came to Avalon, what's it, uh, Glastonbury, with Joseph of Arimathea, his uncle. Others think he came to um, Ireland. The Celtic Church themselves say they, they were founded by Jesus when he visited Ireland. As a youth, uh, he came with uh, uh, as an apprentice of his uncle or father, Jacob. And so, whether we believe that's true or not, that was their own explanation of how they mm. emerged. So, they weren't even controlled. They had no reason to fall in line with uh, either Orthodox Church, Coptic Church, Catholic Church. So, yeah. yeah. The, there is another um, uh, moment here also, and that is the invasion of the Anglo-Saxons in the 4500s. Right. Because they came from the north of Germany and southern uh, Jutland and settled after the Romans retracted from England in 410 or around that time. Mm. 
and they had a massive invasion and they occupied large part of eastern England. That was that became Anglo-Saxon uh, land. I have wondered if um, this could be uh, the origin of Freemasonry, but Freemasonry they went not no, the, the Norse religion went through large changes in after the or in or after the migration period say from 400 to 550 mm-hmm. and this was done mainly in Scandinavia in Sweden Norway and Denmark so i think that the large changes among other moving the religion inside in great halls that was not probably done in the religion in with the Anglo-Saxons that came from North Germany. Mm, mm. Uh, at that time, if you see, you have the Celtic people living there and you have the uh, Scottish people. The Picts. The Picts. And um, I think that their religion must be very different from Freemasonry, which I see as a Germ- Germanic religion. Uh, I studied the Celt religion as well. There is not very much known about this uh, Celtic religion before Christianity, but uh, I think... Uh, hang on, are you referring to the Druids? Yeah, for instance, the Druids. Mm, mm, mm. But uh, I think, I, I'm convinced that uh, Freemasonry must be a Germanic origin. Interesting. And therefore, I mean that it must come from the Vikings settlers that came in the 250 years period, starting about 800. But, but, but wait a minute. When you say Germanic, yeah. uh, you're not referring to, to Vikings, right? You've yeah, re- yes, the, the Vikings. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. In, the, in the wide perspective, Germanic. Also, okay. Sc- Scandinavian and North uh, Germany. Okay, not Teutonics. Okay, okay. No, so those those people speaking Germanic languages. Right, right, right. Yeah, but I, I kind of distinguish between Scandinavians and the Southern Germanic, the the Central Europe uh, Teutonics. Yeah. 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 So, but just to be clear, you're talking about Norse Germanic. Norse Germanic, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. Mm. okay. So, what you said here is so interesting. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm going to tell you about some mind-blowing new discoveries, but I'll wait a little bit. (laughs) Uh, I want you to go on. Uh, Explain to us. We've already seen, we've established, of course, very superficially, but if people want a real academic level to this, they just have to read your book. (laughs) We can only do so much in a radio show. But we've established that it's plausible, historical plausible, that there were overlapping and integrating between Norse impulses and Christian impulses in England. Now, how does this turn into masonry? Because obviously masonry is its own thing. It's not specifically Norse. It's not specifically Christian. So how how is the link to masonry coming in here? Because your big thing isn't that Norse influenced Christians. That's more Harald Bolke. But no. that it actually is the blueprint for what became the foundation, the skeleton of Freemasonry. So, so you need to take us through that uh, step of the evolution. Yeah. 
the guarantee after the meeting in York, I go back to Adelstone. Yep. Yep. Um, the Viking names of the gods were removed, and in came King Solomon as a Christian guarantor. He was a sort of old god, or and there are uh, documents from England in that period where they long back to the time of Solomon and his time, and that would be a very good period. So, so, so about when did they put in the yeah. Solomon law? This was in 930. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason for this is that uh, King Adelstan's grandfather, King, what was his, his king? Um, yeah, he, he made the laws in uh, that came about 890. And he made a reference to the Bible. And there were two distinct figures. The one was Moses with his laws from the Sinai mountain coming down, giving laws to his people. And the other was Solomon. And Solomon in his laws was very... And he made the good rule to the English people in the law. And so... 30 years after, or 40 years after, King Solomon was also introduced in Freemasonry instead of the Norse gods. Odin flew out, so did Freya and Thor, and King Solomon came in. And this happened when? Uh, 930 about. Okay, because I interviewed uh, uh, Timothy Hogan, who is the grandmaster of one of the many, many allegedly surviving Templar lineages, he said something interesting. He said that in his research, originally the Masonic Templar, because he doesn't really distinguish, uh, I mean, he he looks at Masonics as a neo-Templar movement. He said that in the Templar Masonic mythos, there was a change that originally it was focused on Noah and the flood myth and you know, stuff going back to Gilgamesh and, and, and that. Okay. And that, I, I don't recall when, I don't know if he even asked him when, but he said that at some point they, for some reason, exchanged all that with the Solomon myth. Hmm. Now, if it was around 900 or 1000, that would be like, a, then we see here an organized attempt to put in the Solomon Moses myth everywhere. And replace it with the old stuff. So if there was some currents going into masonry coming from the Middle East, like the Noah flood thing, and other currents coming from the Norse, then they would purge the the Noah and the Odin stuff and replace everything with Solomon. Yeah. So, so I, that's just a, a potential parallel that I see there. I don't know if it means anything, but it's interesting that for some reason they want to impose the Solomon myth mythos everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Okay, go on. This I think that the um, say people of Scandinavian origin in uh, England they could have a relative free uh, religion until the Normans came in 1066. Mm. And, uh, but after that, I think that the um, times were very difficult for them. And uh, there is 
especially one thing that uh, should be mentioned here. After the Norman invasions, there were every year uproar in the north. So the Normans hadn't any possibility to control Northumberland and York and the area around. So William the Conqueror, every year he went north and tried to punish the uproar. And after three years, I think it was 1069, he made what was called the Herring of the North. He crushed the, uh, the cities, he killed the people, and the writings from that time claim that it was 100,000 people who were killed in this. He destroyed the fields and put salt in there on the ground so that no crop should grow, and he destroyed the plows. And a lot of people from this area had to flee, and they flew probably to the north in the Scotland and settled with their relatives there to the east of England and to the south of England just to get away from this. And in that way, I think that they took the Freemasonry with them mm. to all parts of England and Scotland. And that was probably the reformed Freemasonry, the, the reformed religion now called Freemasonry. Yeah, let's call, let's call it let's call it proto Masonry because of course they didn't refer to themselves as Freemasons already then. So so I think proto Mason is a better yeah. Yeah, yeah. description. Yeah, mm. yeah, I agree. And um, so they they. I think this made the spread of, of Freemasonry all over England and the large part of Scotland. Yeah, but that's the 1700s. Before we get there, there's much to cover. Now, it's extremely interesting what you're saying because it dovetails with so much other research. For example, okay. if the Templars, well, we know the Templars found a safe haven in Scotland, so what I now imagine is the roots of masonry is that Scotland already had this independent-minded culture. Obviously, they're famous for that. They're still, <laughs> they're still a, a thorn in the eye of the Brits. Yes, but of course, back then too. And so they had their own culture. We know they were super influenced by by Norse. Uh, I mean, genetically, they are as much. Scandinavians as they are Celtic and so if the Knights Templars flooded Scotland not just Scotland of course but especially Scotland then um, there would probably be some kind of and, and they found brothers there it would probably be some kind of uh, amalgam fusion going on there between the Knights Templars impulses and this impulse that you're talking about, because everybody's looking at the Knights Templars' impulses. Yeah. But that's not enough to explain Freemasonry, because Freemasonry has many distinctive traits that you do not find among the Knights Templars. Of course, you do find some commonalities too. But I'm thinking now that that could have happened that the Knights Templars came, they recognized each other, and... Yeah, so so that we have two streams coming into Freemasonry, the the one from the Templars 
and the one that, that you're talking about. Do you see this as potentially plausible? Well, uh, if I should um, say something about this, mm -hmm. uh, I think that the heraldic orders like the Templars, they origin from probably from Freemasonry, not the other way around. Wow. And and um, the um, okay, go into that. That's interesting. Be, because I think that it started in the in the thousands in England with these orders, and it was uh, the or, I mean the origin was probably Freemasonry. Yeah, or, or proto masonry. Yeah, or, or proto masonry. Yeah. Um, when I say <laughs> so, it d developed from this, and I think it was the noble in England and France who wanted something more from the proto-masonry as they had in the 1700s. Because in the 1700s, when the three original degrees in Freemasonry became popular, the French nobility wanted to have higher degrees and more, uh, let's say, uh, yeah, greater um, hi, yeah. What's the Norwegian word? No Norwegian flottere. Ah, more fancy. More fancy yeah. rights, yes. And um, so they started to build. So the high degrees in um, Freemasonry, you mentioned 13 degrees in the Swedish Freemasonry, they all came in the 1700s. And I think that the Malteser order the St. John's on Malta has been a strong model for the Freemasonry from the 1700s and up to now. But but obviously the Knights Templars were, uh, I mean, the, the order of the Cistercians were central in founding the Templars. So do you see any connections between the Cistercians and the Proto-Masons? No, actually not, no. Well, doesn't that kind of go against your your theory? I think that, uh, well, I don't know the Cistercian, but that was a, a monk order, isn't it? Yes, Cistercians, we say in Norwegian. So so I think that um, this was probably based on uh, of the church, on um, coming with the church. But in the 1200s, we see that the Cistercians, who was actually very heretic in many ways, they were never on board with, you know, the Inquisition and all that stuff, the purging of the Cathars, all that stuff. That's done by the bad guys, <laughs> the Dominicans, you know, the gods, well, dogs, no. Jesuits, uh, who not. But the Cistercians were always, they were concerned about healing and, and, and cultivating the earth, uh, herb, herbalism, stuff like that. Mm. In a way, very similar to Druids, but... You can also find parallels to Norse. So I, I think, um, unfortunately, it doesn't sound like you've done this, but I think you should go also into the, to see if there can be some kind of historical elements connecting Cistercians to this, because Cistercians are very important in the foundation of the Templars. So if the Templars are 100% coming from the Proto-Masons, there has to be a link via the Cistercians, I'm thinking. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I haven't studied that uh, much. Okay. So so. Uh, but that's okay. But, uh, yeah. Go on. 
what what is very interesting here is um, when we look upon the different elements in Freemasonry. I have studied this on the basis of the Duncan's Ritual of Freemasonry, which is a book with the rituals appearing in America from 1866. Mm. And um, this is very much the basis of what I've done and compared this with what is found in museums in Scandinavia. So this is a sort of building stone that I used in my arguments. So, But is this book from America, is that the oldest uh, Freemason rituals that survives today? Uh, no, it's, well, no, but there are, there was some other um, American rituals written in the beginning of the 1800. But I, I use this because it is filled with uh, pictures of what is happening in the degrees. Mm. And I make comparison with what is found there. And I had a lot of trouble in the first time finding out what is what here. Because when the Freemasons went public in the beginning of the 700 in England, the first they appeared public was in the year 717. They had two degrees in London. Mm-hmm. And after some uh, years, a third degree coming from the north in England, from the York right, with a third degree, uh, was also introduced so that they had three degrees. And uh, I mean, I had uh, problems finding out what sort of material belongs to the first degree, the second degree, and the third degree. And uh, when I, But when I sorted this out, things became very simpler in, uh, in my research. And I found that the first degree must be the initiation to the goddess Freya. Mm. Second degree must be an initiation to the god Odin, or Wotan, as it's called also. And third degree must be initiation to the god Thor, Thor. that is the god of thunder. Mm. It reminds me of the Gnostic uh, uh, scripture called Thunder, Perfect Mind. (laughs) I don't know if you're aware of that. No, I, I don't know that. <laughs> okay. But, uh, uh, yeah, we're going to go into the similarities between the degrees. Let's just muse a little more about the historical elements first, uh, because the degree stuff is very technical. Uh, of course, the Masons listening to this will have no problem understanding that when we go through it. But uh, people who are not will maybe have a harder time following that. But the historic part, everyone can follow. Yeah. So I'm I'm still trying to find substantiations and making it plausible that the proto-Masons would become, well, uh, that the Norse became the Masons. And uh, when you even say that the Templars are based on the, Ma- uh, on the uh, Norse or that the proto-Masons become the Templars, we need to substantiate that. But you said something very interesting. You said that... Uh, that there was a mixed religion practice in Scotland. 
Han är en England. Han är en England. I, I'm gonna blow your mind now. Are you ready? <laughs> ja, kom igen. <laughs> Obviously you are aware of the Sinclairs. Yes, of course. And they have now found, they're still working on validating, on authenticating this document. But they found some interesting documents. First of they have the, well, you have the, we've always had the La Crema, what's it called, La Crema Charter or something? That shows ties between Templars and Masons. Then you have uh, uh, another document that came to light uh, that Scott Walter talked about. I'm blanking on the name, but that's not that important. The third one is the most important, and that's the journals of Henry Sinclair. In fact, they found journals of uh, a Sinclair lineage going from, I think, when did it begin? I think the earliest one was around 1200 and all the way up to when was the latest entry but there's a few hundred years it goes from father to son of the Sinclairs okay that, that's amazing uh, it includes the builder of uh, Roslyn yeah. and what's super interesting is that and I, I mean I can't account for all the stuff in there now that we, it's a show in itself and we already had one show on it but They were sailing to America. According to these journals, Templars found refuge uh, and they mixed with the Sinclairs and the Bruces and all that stuff. And the Vikings had already uh, colonized Iceland and Greenland. And, well, they had their own names for the other lands. Of course, we know Vinland and other areas in North America that they had their own names for. I, I don't remember all of them now. But... It seems that there was regular traffic all the way up to the Black Plague to America, especially Northeast and Canada, of course. Hmm. That's not a, I mean, that's a bombshell in itself, although it's, of course, confirmed by modern research. But the interesting thing in our discussion is that he's describing how the, the route obviously went to Norway and then Iceland, then Greenland, and then Nova Scotia. So when they came to Norway, they came to the west. The ships were settling there. And they were partaking in rituals in Norway at this point. We're talking 1200s and 1300s, pretty late actually, especially compared to when you're talking about. But the interesting thing is that they were doing rituals that have strong Norse, uh, signification. For example, they were doing, they were talking about the goddess, uh, celebrating harvest and, and, and commemorating the goddess. Okay. As late as the 1300s. Yeah. Mm. And so it's just a mind blow. So if these journals are authentic, it shows that first off, Norse impulses have survived in Norway and been integrated with the new Christianity in Norway. Remember, this is before the Catholics took over. They took over in the uh, after the Black Plague, basically, uh, middle of the 1300s. So up to the 1300s, there was a mixture. There was surviving impulses in Norway. Now, the same is obviously true in Scotland. Otherwise, they wouldn't partake in this, right? <laughs> so... The- yeah, the, the Norwegian kings mm-hmm. had kingdoms in in Scotland. Large part of West Scotland and the Isles, they were Norwegian Scotland, as we call them, as the king called them, tax land, until twelve hundred and when was it sixteen? 
uh, when they lost that land. So, um, because a Norwegian tax is Scott, and so Scotland became Scotland. And, and even if they lost it in the middle of the 1200s, uh, there was friendly exchanges going on until the middle of the 1300s, according to these journals. For example, they mentioned King Magnus in the middle. Magnus uh, Magabeltir, yes. No, it's not him. It's, uh, uh, this is in the 1300s, uh, around 1340, something like that. I don't think that's Lagerböte. No, um, Magnus Lagerböte, he lost the land, the, the, on the fixed land, that means in Scotland, because his father, Håkon Håkonsen, he had a battle and he died on the Orkneys right. um, after losing a battle. And then there was a peace in Perth, I think, that uh, the Scottish king took this um, areas from the Norwegian king, but they still kept the Orkneys and the Shetland Islands until late 1480 or so. Mm -hmm. But um, I have another mind blow for you, and <laughs> this is something that you can look into if you manage, because I think it substantiates your theory. Uh -huh. Many years ago, I was reading a book uh, I bought a book that I was sending to a German teacher that I had, or mentor, or whatever you should call it. And it's a jubileum. What's that in English? Jubileum. Jubilee. Jubilee. Commemoration book of Bergen, the city of Bergen. Yeah. It's written by, I, I just can't recall the name of the author or the name of the book, but it shouldn't be too hard to find because I think it's the... It was the celebration of the... It, it was in the 70s. How old was Bergen in the 70s? Uh, well, I think it was perhaps 1,000 years old. Thousand. So this must have been the 1,000 years celebration. Let's see, Bergen is founded in 1070. So, no. So if it's from 1970, it would be the 900-year commemoration. So it was a scholar in the University of Bergen making a book about the history of Bergen, published in relation to the celebration of the 900 year. Now, here's the thing. In this book, and this book wasn't concerned about what we are talking about at all, but he had a very interesting passage that puzzled this historian himself. He didn't understand it, but he mentioned it. And he said that in the 1200s, 11 and 1200s, there were lodges, and I'm now talking about lodges very much in the meaning of speculative masonry mm -hmm. in Bergen. And I think all the way to 1300 that were a threat to both the king and the church. Because the people who came together in these uh, logs or, or lodges were, of course, the middle class that they had then. Uh, and it was not many people who could read and write at this point but these guilds lodges yes yes yeah they had practical men that were rich enough to i mean they needed to read and write because of their craft and so the thing is that the king was worried because when they meet in these closed groups circles he was worried that they could <laughs> incite uh, rebellion uh, against his uh, totalitarianism 
and the same for and that's political aspect right and the church was worried that they they were a threat to their spiritual hegemony why because they were practicing heathen rituals that was the accusation anyway that, that's very interesting and, and the mm. way he described it sounded to me like masonry or knight templars it was like that kind of organization but mm. at that point i didn't know uh, until i saw your book i didn't know that i never heard about norse religion being organized and practiced in a western order knights templars masonic kind of style So I thought that was outlandish. Why would Norse religion be organized and practiced like this? And as early as, actually as late as 11, 12, 13, when supposedly Norway was Christian and the Norse religion was dead, obviously there has been pockets of survivals where there's some kind of amalgam going on. Yes. If not pure Norse religion. Mm. Don't you find this very interesting in light of your own research? Yes, of course. Religion isn't a thing that you can just uh, accept one day and start uh, practicing <laughs> exactly. Christianity the next day. Exactly. It has long tradition and thousand years, and you do as your parents, your grandparents, and your family, and has done in all at all times. You don't switch to religion uh, like that. Exactly. So I think that that uh, religion has lot very uh, the old religion has long traditions in in Norway, and that uh, introducing the, the acceptance of Christianity went much um, not so quick as uh, the church would like it to to be. Yeah, it has to had to be gradual. Gradual, and, uh, and yeah, and, and we have football. sorry in that phase where it's gradual, it would have to be yeah. a little bit of the old and a little bit of the new. It had to be like a mix, a transition. Yeah, and uh, I have um, visited the Finnlofte in Voss in western Norway. Voss was a very remote remote place at that time. And uh, it's about 100 kilometers west of Bergen inland. Right. And there they have a loft. And uh, there are two square buildings as a sort of cellar or fundament. And then this loft is on top. This is about 100 square meters. And uh, this looks very similar to Freemason Lodge as we know it today. Mm. Um, I have uh, discussed this with uh, Harald Mittun, who was the, in charge of this for many years. And he says that the um, log underneath were from 1295. But the loft up on top, that is much older, he claims. Hmm. And he means that there could have been old heathen religions doing here. Um, they, they they were cultivating, worshipping old, but when? When was this in Vos? Um, this is still standing. And um, what is interesting is that they have removed, they got a new floor at the end of the 1800s. But the old planks was used on the outside in the Svalde, as we say. Mm -hmm. And here there are three or four holes in the wall for steering. 
And I think that the, these small vaults, for instance, too small and one big, mm-hmm. or one big and too small, must be for steering something. And I think that this was for the placement of the pillars mm. standing in the rooms that we have in the lodge today. Jokin and Boers, the Masonic pillars. Yes. Yes, but uh, when uh, were they cultivating the Norse gods at this place? Is the theory when? It it is said that it was uh, up to fourteen hundred and thirty about. Wow, that late! Wow. So when I I pointed to the Norse lodges in Bergen, which is close to Vos, this is even after that. So that kind of shows that something must have been going on at least at the west coast of Norway and and that's not surprising because we were at this point much closer to Iceland and the western island like you said fairy islands Orkney and Shetland and also Scotland of course so at this point all that was kind of a very close communicated uh, society uh, boats going back and forth even to greenland yeah. so this all makes sense to me i mean it's of course going against the mainstream narrative today but but it's all internally consistent it kind of uh, confirms each other these different scattered traces that we're discussing yeah. super interesting yeah that, there is another uh, thing here too that i would like to mention mm-hmm. for you yep and um, that is um the term called etlaying, that is leading into the et, leading into the family. This is a rite that is called, that is found in the old Norse laws before the Harald um, Lagerbøters landslov from 1274. These old laws they mentioned etlighting. That was when a son should be introduced into the family. Mm. And he was after his puberty age, perhaps. And then there were descriptions of how this should be done. They should slaughter an ox, and they should put the shoe from the ox on his left foot. And this sounds very much like the... Uh, Elusian. Yeah, this no, wait, M- Mithras. And who's slaughtering the ox? That's Mithras, isn't it? Yeah, Mithras, I think. Yeah. The, the, Paganism. Yeah. yeah. But um, I mean that this rite has probably been a part of pro- what you call proto-Freemasonry. Yeah, yeah. Be- and this, the Freemason today in the English York rite, he has a slipper on one foot, and he is nearly naked when he's led into the ox into the lodge. Afterwards, he gets the ox skin around his waist, and um, these are also reminiscent from that time. I mean, this is straight from Freemasonry. Yes, huh. this is Freemasonry. Wow! And um, this etlighting has been done in Norway. In the, it's written in documents in the 1300s, and in one ritual in Valdres, in I don't remember about 1300 and say 50, there was a priest who accepted his two sons in etlighting in front of the church in Valdres. Wow. Hang on, could this be, is this a Thomas church? 
You know, uh, Thomas Church or, uh, in, in uh, no, that's not Valrus, really. You know, in the middle of uh, the plateau between Oslo and Bergen, uh, if you go from Oslo, yeah. you come to Valdres, and then you come to the Thomas Church in the middle. Harald Bolke makes a big deal of the Thomas Church because he says the Thomas Church is probably one of the oldest, if not the oldest, and it's the middle of the Norwegian pentagram that he's discovered. And of course, it's it's uh, uh, it's on Fillefjall, which means Fjall, Fjall. Yeah, Fjall, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's dedicated to Thomas the Twin, Thomas Didymus, which is uh, Thomas Thomas, meaning twin, twin. Okay. And th- that is reminiscent of you talking about the twin gods. We can go get back to that after, but go on with the, with the story, yeah. Valdras. Uh, so m- many documents mentioned this etliding far into the Christian age, as we, we, as we called as as is mentioned was it only for boys or did they do the same for girls um i don't know my my feeling is that originally before christianity it was for boys and girls but after christianity it was only uh, conserved for boys yeah. i'm thinking is logical i i think that the initiation to freya was for the boys and i think that they had and that was done mainly on um, at St. John's Day, as we called it, at the lightest day of the year. Mm. And then we had a corresponding initiation to Frey, that is the male god, at the shortest day, that is around Christmas. So winter solstice and summer solstice. Winter solstice, yes. So but, I but, think- but why would the boys be initiated into Freya? She's a goddess. Yeah, you you had the same from our both in um, in uh, Scandinavian, European, and Middle Eastern religions. The young man was initiated to the goddess. Right. You had that in in Greek Greece when the man was initiated to Demeter, mm. and you have it in uh, the Near East where the young man was. Initiated to Inanna, original in Sumer, and later to Ishtar. Right, right. It so, makes sense because they were, they were all agreeing about the divine feminine. Yeah, that the the goddess had a place. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the father, the son. What's missing, as Scott Walter says? Obviously, the mother. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, they have found this in Su- Sumer say 3000 before christ this um, and and but i think that they have the same all over europe as we find in greece and other places and this yeah is, yeah in paganism yeah because the paganism was so similar all over europe yeah. back then this is what maria gimbutas called the goddess of fertility or the great mother goddess right right so so and, wait a minute so when you talk about three degrees freya's right odin's right and thor's right don't you really have there, you have the Father, the Son, and the Mother, or the Holy Spirit. That's the triangle, right? Uh, not not exactly. It uh, might be become so later, but originally, I think there were different religions. Oh, the, right. The, you have the same in Egypt. You had the cult of Isis, yeah, separately yeah. from the cult of Osiris, separately from the cult of Horus. That's the same. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
But but uh, so there are different approaches or streams within yeah. the same religion, so to speak. Yeah, uh, it might be the same uh, that they are regarded as uh, in the late time the same religion. But originally, I think that this religion that there were different religions. Okay, and the Tur right. I mean, came with the Indo-European tribes coming from the east. Mm. They brought the god of thunder with them to Scandinavia, to Europe, and to the Near East. Wait, wait, wait a minute, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, we have to, you know, take pauses every time there's something to dwell on. And okay. so just remember yeah. your reasoning. Because Hayadal, like we mentioned before we started, Hayadal claims that it was the Odin or Wotan cult that came from uh, the Black Sea to uh, and, and, and populated Scandinavia. Now you're saying it's a Thor? Yeah, I think these are different rites. Okay. The, the Thor rites belong to the original people coming with the Indo-European language to Europe, to Scandinavia, and to the Near East. But Odin is the great shaman. He has yeah. very strong characteristics from shaman, and you find very many similarities with him in Asia, in Russia and Asia and, and in the north. So, but that also came from the east. So um, uh, both these uh, religions came from the East. But I yeah, but, but when you say it came from the East, we're talking very ancient times, obviously. Yeah, yeah. in the Bronze Age. Mm. And uh, I, yeah, I don't. I think the Odin's right came later than the Thor's right. And in the Viking Age, the Odin became the supreme god in southern Scandinavia. That's in Denmark. And in Skåne, south of Sweden, but in Norway, especially Western Norway, and in parts of Sweden, Thor was the main god. Mm. And we find that in um, in Ireland, where the Norsemen were called the children of God, something similar did the Scottish say. They were venerating Thor. So Thor was in the north of Scandinavia, the main god and there were no no one higher than him mm. but i think that um, the the sami people they were actually the last people in scandinavia or in europe to be christian hang on hang on i have to explain okay. the sami folks are the indigenous people of norway well i i guess we are indigenous too but they are indigenous to the north and they have preserved amazingly, uh, despite this Puritan uh, suppressive pressure to become Christian, they have preserved their shamanic origins, impulses. And mm. we know also from mainstream history uh, and of also independent history that there was cooperation and mutual recognition between the Norse religion and the Sami uh, spirituality. In fact, wasn't it Harald, the hairfair, Hofaga, who married a Sami? Uh, one of these great Norwegian Viking kings even had a Sami yes, wife. Yes, yeah. I think he had the 17 or 18 wives and the Sami was one of them. 
<laughs> so that's why 50% of the Norwegian population yep. are genetically traced back to him because he had so many wives. I didn't know that. <laughs> okay. But they, they were, the, the Sami people, they had their god of thunder called Huragallis. Right. And this is a translation of the Thor Karl, also Thor Karl. Karl is a man. Yeah. So, and they, this, we see traces of the god of thunder among the, the Sami people that is very similar to the old Norse right, Thor's right. Karl is the same as Carlos in, in French ah. and Spanish. And obviously in French, it's, you know, Charles, the great Charles. Charles. Yeah. Charles. And that is the original meaning, a free man. Right. Um, but I have also seen many similarities in the old Sami religion that is very similar to the old Norse religion. So that could be influence from Norse to Sami, or it could be the other way, or, or just that all of them had the original. Because if you go far, the further back in history you go, the more similar is the essence of their spirituality all over. Yeah. So so yeah. who's to say w- what comes from where when we're so far back? But uh, still, it's interesting that the Samis managed to maintain their ways. Yeah. Some scholars uh, claim that the Sami people got their religion in the large forest or steppe areas north of the Black Sea on the Ural Mountains, where they met the original Indo-Europeans, say, 3,000 years before Christ. But in that case, they have the same roots as us, because that's more and more research is pointing to that we too derive from that area, not just in terms of spirituality, but even in terms of uh, genetics, in terms of the migration. Yeah. That's right, because the Sami people and the Finnish people as well, we must also include them, they, they had a similar religion. They have many words that they have borrowed from the Indo-European language, the original. Yeah, I have to inject again, just for the basic education, because not everybody knows this. Okay. And that's that the Finnish, contrary to popular belief, are not, originally at least, are not the same as the Swedish, Danes, Norwegians. The Finnish is belonging to the Altaic, Uralian peoples, as opposed to the Indo-European, which is the Samis is one branch, Finnish is an independent branch, Estonians is another branch, not Latvians, not Litauians, but Estonians. Hungarians (laughs) is a branch. Mm. And so... That makes sense that the Finnish and the Samis have uh, common impulses. In fact, in the Finnish, the fin- the original Finns, that, that's why actually Finns today, the Christianity in Finland, they have also Orthodox religion there, unlike uh, Sweden, Norway and Denmark, which uh, has just a Protestant thing. But in Finland, they have their own <laughs> thing going on. So. Yes. Yeah, just wanted to do that basic education. So there are brothers of the Samis, distant cousins, as one says. Yeah. Finns. Yeah. Mm. Go on. Yeah, very, very. Yeah, so you were talking about how the Finns uh, had in common with the Samis this um, uh, old impulse. Yeah, and they migrated to Finland, say, two or three thousand years before Christ. And so did the Samis. They settled first in Finland and then, then they went up to North Scandinavia. 
And and when did uh, the no- Norse tribes come to Scandinavia? Yeah, the the original tribes came probably after the Ice Age, mm. and uh, they believe that the settlers came from Western Europe, the countries now called from uh, called France and Spain, and they went up chasing the whales and fishing along the coast. That's a mainstream theory, right? Yeah, that's for the original gatherers, fishing mm. gatherers uh, societies. And those are the Ur-Norwegians. But the end of the Ice Age, that's long, long back in history. That's 12,000 years ago, 10 to 20,000 years ago. So we came before the Samis and the Finns? Yeah, some of us. Mm. But then there was, what is um, interesting here, were the people coming from Eastern Europe. Mm. And they came in the Bronze Age say, 3,000 years to 2,500 years before Christ. And then they brought their religion with them, and that was the religion with the highest gods and the gods of thunder, and probably also the twin gods. Uh, this is consistent with the work that Per Liljestrom and Thor Heyerdahl was doing right before Heyerdahl died. Many people are continuing this work. In fact, I have a friend in Iceland who's into the same stuff. Okay. Yeah. And this is this is going to be, I think, some years from now, it's going to be the new mainstream because there's so much evidence for it. And this is interesting because it means that they came about the same time as the Samis and the Finns, only that the Samis went much more north and we went, yeah, to the rest, yeah. south. But following the um, old Indo-European people and their religion out from uh, their Urheimat in present-day Russia and Ukraine. This is exactly what Tuhaira was working on when Hayadal died, right? It's the last thing he was... Uh, no, not actually. Oh. I think they, they were much more closer, not that old. Oh, okay. Because so, they, had the uh, same, they had the same theory. Yeah. They also came from this area, Caucasian area that you're talking about. It has to be the same people. But you're going further back with it. I further see. back, yes. Yeah, I see. Many thousand years before his age. Wow. And uh, look at the first sign of horses in graves, the first uh, Indo-European language, which the researchers mean came to f- from the Urheimat near Volga and north of the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea. Yeah. And then they migrated into Europe, northern Scandinavia, to Greece and to the Near East. And archaeological traces and uh, the language, how it developed, for instance, the Hittite language, the Luvian language that is found in the um, Anatolia. And uh, these are the oldest uh, Indo-European language. And I see how this developed, Mm -hmm. the Harians in the Near East. They have been a very important people. it's um it's a people living in say the third thousand before Christ. Wow. In um it's south of the Caucasus Mountains, which carried their culture further down to Syria. I I mean that the twin gods, the Dioscuri, as it's called in uh, in uh, Greek. Mm-hmm. 
this religion was very important also in the Near East. Mm. They, they have found it in Scandinavia, which they had get uh, a large um, at- attention in the later years, and also in uh, Greece. Mm-hmm. So I follow their archaeological and language traces down to the Near East, to, to Ugarit, and the excavations that have had been there. These are remnants of the twin gods, the Indo-European twin gods. Wow. When, when I put the theory of the twin gods, the Dioscuri, over the religion in Ugarit, and uh, the excavations done other, in other cities and underground in the castles in, uh, in, in Syria, mm-hmm. I found the twin gods. And this gives a completely new explanation to the old writings from Ugarit. Mm. And this is in the old religion in the inner Mediterranean, in the Levant and in Greece. Mm. So I think that um, the cremation of the bodies came with the Indo-Europeans. And the first cremation is found in Sweden in about 2500 before Christ. Mm And they brought their religion with them, what is we now call the God of Thunder, but this was originally the twin gods. That that is what the Greek called Gemini. Mm. The twin gods and uh, Pollux and Castor. Yeah, Pollux and Castor, yeah. And uh, of these the strongest man strongest god survived or uh, became dominant and that was the god Thor. Mm. I mean, I think that the name Thor comes from the Germanic Thor, which means gate. Mm. And it is the gate to the twin gods that we still have in the, what you call Stjernetine, the zodiac with a Gemini sign, mm. with the two pillars. And we find that also in the Sami people, and we find it in the earliest state churches in Norway. Yes, and and that's why I mentioned the Thomas Church, because that was dedicated to the twin. But at this point, it was cloaked in Christian expression, which is why they chose uh, Thomas Didymus, and which is why Filifial was called Filifial, because it's a meaningless word, it's Fjallfjall, basically. Uh, Filefjall with two L's uh, it became Filefjall eventually okay. meaning mountains but the interesting thing is that this church the Thomas church in the middle of Norway in the middle of the mountain range was the most popular it, it was the most independent church it lingered on and it was hated by the rest of the priests and, and churches bishops because it was so popular among the people and they had their own uh, kind of heretic thing going on there. So I, I think uh, the Norse impulses must have survived. Why, okay. why else would they be uh, despised by the... And they tried to shut down the church so many hundred years. In fact, they succeeded. Uh, when was it shut down officially? Uh, the stave church that originally was there. I think it was in the 1700s. And then it... Uh, then came the Romantic period. They regretted everything uh, in the 1800s. 
and they built eventually this today there's like a pseudo church there it's like just like a, a music commemoration kind of thing going on there yes it's so sad that it was deconstructed because if it had stand still if it just has survived those 200 years and until people realized we should preserve it okay yeah, because it was so important. It obviously had something going on that was independent, had to be Norse. What else could threaten them? So uh, that's just a little detour anyway. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, where were we before I interrupted you here? Um, yeah, you were talking about the twin gods. So is the twin gods in the Norse expression, is that Thor and Odin? No, I think it it was, it used to be, Thor and Loki. And Loki, of course, his brother. Loki comes from Loki, probably the lighting, the light, the light god. And you find that same in Greece and other places. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Loki is the light god. I mean, today he is looked at as the dark side and Thor. Yeah. Kind of the light. But it's actually the reverse. Yeah. The... Hmm. Uh, Loge comes from Loge in uh, Old Norse. Loge is the when you have a fire. That's a Loge, mm. and that is uh, you can see at light. So he was a fire god. So he's lightning, and Thor is thunder. Yeah, hmm. and uh, I well, th- this is perhaps something that uh, that I can mention that is not in my book, but I'm doing uh, some research further. And I think the origin to the twin gods were what the scientist has found in the last, say, 10 or 20 years. And that is when you have thunderstorms, the first there appear what is called gamma glimpse in uh, a very strong electric impulse coming out of the other sky. Mm. This makes a brass fire look like the firestorm going up into the sky. Mm-hmm. And just after that, you see the light. Light generally goes between the skies and down to the earth with the thunder and the rain. So I think these two say, um, phenomenons that you see in thunderstorms has been the origin of the twin gods. That's my theory. Mm, makes sense. Yes. I mean, they did observe nature. Of course, when they put names on, on, on the natural phenomenons, uh, why wouldn't this be a part of that? So, yeah, it totally makes sense. I, I mean, all gods are coming from uh, the nature. Nature, yeah. What they found in nature. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So, okay. So let's uh, uh, make a little recap here. We have these impulses that survives up to. Actually, the thing is, 1350 is a very important date in the world because that's when the Black Plague was causing havoc all through the known world and it made devastating destruction for us that's when we lost our language actually after after that we started talking uh more like a swedish danish actually yeah. uh, 
we stopped using runes eventually. There was a transition period, but the problem was that the people who could read and write were wiped out. We had to import new nobility, and we got that from Denmark and Sweden. And so our language today is much closer to Danish and Sweden, mm, yes. whereas Iceland, which is an island, so it's more isolated, they have preserved a language much more closer to the original Norse, which is why we have big problems understanding them. They can understand us, <laughs> but we can't understand them so much. But we can understand very easily Danish and Swedish because of this. Now, obviously, if it wiped out the writing, the runes, being replaced with the Latin alphabet and it wiped out the spoken language even, obviously it must have devastated this uh, finer stuff, more fragile stuff like the spirituality, the rituals, the the traditions. Yes. And so after the 13th, from the 1350 and upwards, we're kind of a new country uh, being rebuilt and the genuine traces of our original tradition spirituality is lost. But then we have the Masonic phenomenon in the 1700s. So I think of it that at this point you should try to explain to us how do you see the history going from the 1300s, 1315 and up to the 1700s when the United Grand Lodge of England is is established, and mm. masonry as we know it today comes to light. What's the missing? What's the, what happens in that gap there? Well, there are written documents in England that mentioned the meetings in York in the 920s that I mentioned for you. Mm. There are three documents going back to to that. Except for that, there are minutes from meetings in Scotland in the late 1500s. And uh, there have also been, I also read that the Freemasons from the north of England became or knew the Freemasons from the south of England in the mid 1500s. Mm. So um, there have been a contact here. Uh, but it uh, let, let, let me add that if the Mace uh, Knights Templars survived in Scotland, uh, as we know they did, then uh, they could have been a part of this secret law helping to survive up until masonry sees the light of day. Well, yeah. Those those uh, Knight Templar circles, I mean. Yeah. And, and uh, within certain families like the Sinclairs and the Bruces. Yeah. The, the Sinclairs uh, are said to originate from a normal family from uh, north of France coming to Scotland. A no Normandy family? Normandy, yes. But they are, uh, you know, the word Norman is the same. Uh, when when we, we don't call ourselves Norwegians, we call ourselves Norman, just so people know. And that means the, the Norseman. And the reason Normandy is called Normandy is because Vikings occupied it. So they are actually just our own uh, descendants yes. who came back to bite us in the, excuse my French, bite us in the ass uh. when they invaded England. It's, it's the snake biting its tail, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Only they came with Christianity, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they became Christian in, in France. That was a part of the deal. Yeah. But um, 
the 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 Sinclairs that yeah. that should have been Saint Clairs uh, probably in French mm. when they came there, but yeah. uh, he was a cult or jarl, as we say, earl, earl, earl yeah. under mm. the Norwegian king, William Sinclair, who built the Roslin Chapel. Mm. And uh, I must say that um, I don't know if he was a Freemason. I see in that chapel, I was on a trip with a Freemason group to Scotland and uh, Roslin Chapel some years ago. And uh, I was very skeptical because I didn't see any Masonic symbols in that church at all. Really? But, wow. No, I d- nothing. But then I went down into the crypt and I had seen the Da Vinci Code yeah. where the hero had the last meeting with a beautiful lady who was a descendant of Jesus down mm. there mm. In, the, in the film and in the book. Yeah, yeah. But uh, down there was nothing except for one thing. And in the crypt, there is a stone which has a field on top that is for laying wooden planks or hides so that a candidate can lay down on. On the one side, there is a fish flip. A, fi- a fish tail with four flips. There is wings on one side, and there is the four hooves. What I see as the four hooves of Odin's horse Schleifner, mm. because they say that Odin traveled with a horse, as a fish and a bird and a snake, and the snake's hole you see on the front of that stone. And when um, I recognized that, because I had seen a similar stone from the island Gotland in Sweden before, that was very similar and had the same the same symbols. Okay, so I, I have to I have to corroborate. Remember where you are in your train of thought. In Gotland, just so people know, is where the Cistercians were very strong. They built uh, round churches in those areas, which is night temple churches. And there are many, many traces, uh, substantiations of that part of Scandinavia being very important for the uh, Viking, or, or I should say the Norse Templars. Mm. Obviously, we know the Norse Templars were, was a thing. And in, in Roslin, I also have to say this. Maybe you didn't see any Masonic traces there. Remember, you, you're coming from the modern version and looking back. So, yeah, you would expect to find similarities. But there are at least similarities with Knights Templars lore. And there are confirmations of... Because according to the Sinclair journals, these families that were descendants of Knight Templars in the 1300s went to America from Scotland to America and okay. we we have found I think corn corn is in the Roslin Chapel that does mice what's that in English uh, mice. Um, yeah that's mace yeah corn corn I think yeah mm. yeah Indian corn so they found stuff that wasn't available in Europe at that point when he built it but was available in America. So, Roslin 
is not just connected to the Holy Grail, it has many other connections. But I'm surprised that you didn't find many Masonic connections, but the one you do describe is extremely Masonic. Just so people know, in the Masonic rite, you also have to be laid down to kind of die in the crypt. Yeah. People will know this, right, because they're not Masons. So I just have to kind of explain why that's our commonality. Yeah, but uh, this stone came from a church nearby called the Old Pentland Church. Okay. And it was placed in the crypt to be taken care of, as they said. It had no connection originally with the, the Roslin Chapel. But is it, is it the, the what's called the, ah, what's the word? You know, when you make a sacred building, you start with the basic stone. What's it called? Uh, the ground stone. Ground stone. What's that in Norwegian, by the way? I'm trying to look for the word. Uh, Grundsten. Is that the word? Uh, I think so. I'm not quite sure. Okay. I, I think it has its own term, but yeah, the ground stone. Is that the ground stone of, of the Roslin Chapel? No, no. Mm, okay. So uh, I don't know where that is, but um, the the Pentland Churchyard, the old Pentland Churchyard, is some kilometers away, and uh, it has the same name as the sound between Scotland and Orkneys. That is the Pentland Sound. Mm. So I don't know if there is any connection here. But what, what I see is that this stone is very similar to stones that is on museums in Scandinavia and are found at places like Horgs, that is holy sites in, in Scandinavia. That is a stone where the candidate can lay down after having his psychedelic substances and where he went on a trip with a god to the to the other words. This is very uh, Viking Norse impulse. Which um, uh, hal- uh, what was their triggers? Hallucinogenic triggers that they used. This is called uh, in Norwegian. It's called uh, flainsop, and that has been used by shamans in thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, in English, I think it's just called magic mushroom. I don't, I don't know if yes, they have. Yes, uh, yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and this was used in the old Norse rites to get a psychedelic experience. Yeah. Um, what about the reports of using fluosop? Uh, what's that in English? Fluosop. Yeah. It's a much harder. It's called toadstool amanita. Yeah. In English, fly fungus. I think that uh, it it doesn't give that same uh, experience. No, I think maybe that was used for wars. The berserkers, they fed them with the, <laughs> this mushroom. They got crazy and they put them in the front of the line. At least that's, I don't know if it's true, but that's something I, yeah. <laughs> maybe it's a myth, but could explain a thing or two of why they were so fierce warriors. <laughs> <laughs> but for the spirituality, it makes sense they're m- making flame soap because flame soap is so close to LSD in effect. Yes. Mm. And uh, in the purses of female goddesses, they have found cannabis. Yeah, that's right. And uh, 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 Hang on, hang on. And in, in um, Leif's Budir, 
which is in which is was a waypoint, a ship station between Vinland and ah, uh, uh, what did they call? Uh, they had uh, another land name in the north of Canada, but they found Lanceau Meadow. They found that they used cannabis there too. Okay. Of course, they used hemp. Hemp has been a big deal all through history until yeah, yeah. it was uh, for. You know, the reason cannabis has been forbidden all these years is that nothing to do with the intoxication effect. It has to do with the fact that the hemp industry was a threat in America to the growing, uh, the other stuff they make, uh, well, uh, for competition of how they make fabrics. So, so, but that's another story. The point is they were using hemp in, in uh, the Vikings in America. Mm. We're using hemp not just for clothing and ships and stuff, but also for recreational purposes. And so if they did, if the people we sent over there did that, obviously something similar must have been going on in the source land, which you now tell me that they found uh, cannabis usage here in Europe too. I, I wonder where they got it from because it's never been eligible to grow here in Scandinavia. Mm. Um, they have found another substance as well in the purse of the female goddess or female priest uh, belonging to Freya and that is herb called bulmurt in Norwegian oh wow that's extremely hallucinogenic yeah and uh, from this you get horny right right yeah the witches the you know the, the classical image of witches riding on broomsticks uh, I read that the origin of that is like these pagan women taking bulmurt. <laughs> okay. <yeah. laughs> and a broomstick is obviously a fallow symbol. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. And I also think that uh, Huldra, is, which is a very known, um, what to say? Um, mythical creature, like a female uh, yeah, kind of. F- female. That yeah. was probably called this from from the church who pointed to this when people talked about Freya. So they they just uh, called her evil yeah. creature that you should not... Yeah, if you translate it, Hulda is in English, Vudnymph. Okay. That, that's what the dictionary says. I don't know if it's a good enough translation, but a Vudnymph. So yeah, it's a female kind of uh, uh, nature creature, so to speak. Yeah. Living in the in the forest and in the woods. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, uh, so we see here hallucinogenic uh, impulses going into the rituals. By the way, are you familiar with the uh, the writer Knut? Uh, oh, he, he oh, I forgot his name, but he wrote a lot of novels, fictional novels based upon the Norse religion. Okay. Where he described. I think he's dead now, he's long ago, but he wrote all these books about the Norse religion, cloaked in fiction. Um, what was his name? I uh, I don't uh, know. I forgot his name, sorry. Uh, it's so essential. But anyway, he were pointing to some impulses in the Norse religion where they sacrificed people. Yeah. What do you think about this? Um, I think that... You must go very long back in history to sacrifice people, maybe to the Blanche Age. Right. But um, when it comes to the Iron Age, 
the migration age and up to the Viking age, they didn't sacrifice people. That was a sort of initiation that you had in the rites, for instance, in the Tours rite or in Freya's rite, where they went underground and had a simulation of death. There was, But the church wanted it to see like they sacrificed people to scare people away from it. Yeah. But uh, I have not found anything similar to sacrifice or, or, or people no but in in masonry we have this symbolic death going on uh, could that be a remnant of that kind of sacrifice you have to die to to resurrect yeah in all the old religions that you find in the in greece in the near east and uh, i mean also in scandinavia you have a simulated death and awakening mm. and you have that in all the three original freemasons degrees then you have it in the first or at least in the second and the third degree with um, the initiation to odin and to thor in the third degree i'm not quite sure if this is part of the uh, first degree to Freya, but at least there is the secret wedding with Freya that m- might be underground. But if you see the similar rites that comes from the old mother goddess in other places, such as the Near East, in, in, in Anna and Ishtar, mm. the, it might be that the god or the king died before being uh, wedded to here and stood up. I'm not quite sure. But this is very old rites. And you find the same in the third and the third degree in Freemasonry. So could, you know, the old uh, Norse magic called Seid, or maybe Seidr, I understand that was mostly done by women. But did this tradition... Uh, survive uh, into into proto-masonry, you think? Or even into the uh, revived uh, Norse religion? Uh, I mean, the late Norse religion? Um, I don't know. But I know that the Sami people, they had this. Yeah. And they had this up to the 1800s. Um, and males, the, males could do that too in the Sami. Yeah. And males did that. But, it, but, but I'm looking at the uh, uh, gender distinction because in the 1700s, when the first Freemasonic, I mean, obviously Freemasonry is, is, is older than the 1700s, but the thing about the 1713, when is it that the United Grand Lodge came together? In 1717. 1717. So at that point, it, uh, in my view, that's when Freemasonry died. <laughs> <laughs> because it became controlled, regulated. So, I mean, even today, many people are very skeptical to the United Grand Lodge of England because they're so dogmatic. They're so, uh, and, 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 and it's just an upper class kind of power club more than a living spiritual. But that's another debate. Mm. Point is, it became gender specific to males. And I'm wondering if that's just because the 1700s were very, uh, patriarchal or if this male emphasis is something that was older 
even the disorganized masonry before the 1700s if if and if that goes back to the Norse too that there was a distinction there between males and females you any thought about this um, well i the, the first degree in freemasonry the original freyas degree there you see that they had female officers mm. and you had the volve which was female and it was probably the Freya, who led the meeting at that time. She was a woman, she was a woman, and she accepted the man at the altar, that is the mur, in the meeting, where there was a symbolic wedding with her. The Danish um, writer, our historian Saxon, he describes this in uh, the story about King Hadding's travel with to the underground mm. I don't know if you know that but he was in this this was a Danish king and he was visiting King Håkon in Norway and just as they were sitting in the big hall a woman came up near the fireplace and uh, invited him with so he went down into the earth and there they passed Fred on a path, and then they met many people, high-standing people with purple bands. They went further and came to a place where there was a lot of fog, and they went further and they saw a bridge, and there there were fights between armies, dead warriors. And then they came at last to a big wall called Mur. Mm. And there Freya took cock that she had with her, cut the head of this cock and threw it over the wall. Wow. And from in that place, in the same moment, you heard cock cry from the other. Here it was light, live, and here there was a reborn. That was the place where the life were reborn. After that, Hadding went back to the normal, to his word, and he went with his newly newly wife, Ragnil, went back to Denmark. So this is a sort of wedding at the wall. Mm. And in Scandinavian, the word mur is the one that is in frimurer. Yeah, Freemason meaning. Freemason because a free in Norse language is a young man, is a husband or a lover to a lady. So the, when the young man is accepted at the wall, he becomes free at the wall, free murder. Mm. And um, it can also be that it uh, stems from Freya itself, the name is Freya or Freya. Mm. It can also means free Freya's wall. That is another explanation. Right, that makes sense actually. Huh. Yeah. So even the word Freemason is imported then from Norse. Yes, I mean that. So Freemura is uh, actually uh, the the. It's not just we who translated that back. It's actually the word in in your theory, the word that 
became what they called Freemason. The, the original word. Wow. But in France, between the, say, the rights from uh, King Adelstan in the 920s, and when they started the first manuscript, like the Hallevel manuscript in 1390, mm-hmm. at that time it was called Freemason. The, the Mur was called Mason. It was directly translated into French. Yeah, so in French they say France Masonerie. Is that how they Franc Masonerie? Franc Masonerie. Yeah, uh, it's the same as the uh, as the word uh, we say Franc Rieke. Yeah, which is the kingdom of the free. But but Franc is uh, also you know the name uh, the the Frankians of the tribe, right? Yeah, it probably meaning free and Franc. Yeah, we we say that. That's an expression. To be free and frank, we say. Mm. F- frank in English also meaning honest, I think. Yeah, honest. Yeah. There is um, um, another, this is perhaps too detailed, but there are also <laughs> another document from the 900s in England where they use the word, the same word, because this has uh, the word free as we have see it in Freemasonry, in free, it belonging to the family, to, to love and to include all good things is in this word. Mm. While freeing a slave, then the old at the Norse and the old English and Germanic language had another word, and that is the word trelsa. Oh. And that's a different meaning. So, yeah, I mean, in English, frelse is salvation or yeah, being. They use the French word. But right, right. When you see this distinction between these words that has gone together in, uh, in Norwegian, uh, the origin that was different. And this also indicates that that, that was the meaning of the word free. As a man and a husband and a lover to Freya and the same connected with a female Freya, Freya. Mm. So, you you know, you have the word thraldom, which is slavery, and then you have the word freedom, which then is actually uh, pointing to Freya yeah. mm. in, in its ultimate uh, etymology. Huh. Yeah. The, the meaning of the frelse Frelse word, the salvation word, is probably free hals, that's free throat, because uh, slaves had a noose or something around their their throat because they were not free. Mm. So when they were free, they removed this uh, thing around their nose. But that's the same in masonry, in the ritual, right? No, no. Um, I think you, you're talking about you're talking about uh, uh, rope uh, yeah. around the neck, right? Yeah, but in Freemasonry, that is uh, the original in the first degree. There are many discoveries of Blanche status of Mother Goddess in the Blanche Age from 800 to 500 BC. Um, they have found old um, female or, or now old, let's say, bronze figures with two rings around the neck. There is one called the Kimbo figure in the 
gold chamber in the Stockholm Museum, uh, historical museum, mm-hmm. with um, silver bronze figure with a double ring. And at that time, the Danish archaeologists ar- archaeologists say that the female with a double ring around the neck was a leading religion in Scandinavia in that time. Wow. And I mean that this is probably the later Freya's symbol, because the Freemason today still has a rope around the neck, or two ropes. One is the umbilical cord where he's born with, and mm. the other is the cord to be hanged with. And this is symbol of life and death. Yeah. And in the before the migration period in the bronze early bronze age, this was the death to Freya by hanging. Wasn't Odin also hanged? Yes, he was also hanged, but he was hanged not around the neck, but around ah. his his uh, waist. Right, right. So right. that he didn't die there. Right, right. He was right. just hanged there. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Fascinating stuff, Arvid. Look, the bodily uh, <laughs> needs are pressing on. Uh, I need a toilet break. I need some coffee. Should we just take a quick break and then no. continue this ride when we come back? Can I just uh, cite them? Sure, the, sure. Go ahead. Archaeologist, it was Peter Wilhelm Glob who said that in the Iron Age, between 500 before Christ to 500 after Christ, the goddess with the double neck ring seems to have dominated the Nordic cult life. Mm. He said, and I mean, this must be Freya. Yeah. Because in the Viking Age, the goddess Freya had a golden necklace called Brisingarmen, and this was the the, the golden necklace. Mm. And when I visited Scottish, no, um, English lodge in York some years ago, the candidate came out with a large, um, what to say, um, smicker, what's that? Uh, amulet, um, yeah, a trinket, trinket is the word. Okay. Yeah, trinket jewel ornament. Yeah, uh, around his neck with double, double cord around the neck, and very white. So this must be as just a copy of the breathing almond that Freya had. Okay. Hmm. Okay, but let's continue uh, when we come back after the break. Okay. Yeah. Then I hear from you. Yeah. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks. 